Hi everyone, it's me, Reshma Sajani, the founder and CEO of Girls Who Code. Welcome to Brave, Not Perfect. On this podcast, I talk with up and coming change makers from all around the world, but with a little twist. Every episode is going to highlight ideas from my new book, Brave, Not Perfect. Fear less, fail more, and live bolder. Get ready to break free from the cult of perfection. Today, I'm talking with Robin Moxkey, a Native American technology activist, filmmaker, and writer. She's a member of the Native American Mohican Nation Stockbridge Muncie Band, a tribal college graduate, and the director of the first national Native American collegiate hackathon. Her work focuses on redefining storytelling through technology while broadening the participation of underserved communities. She's been blogging since she was a preteen. She was invited to President Obama's White House on computer science events, and she has been talking about the power of technology and storytelling because it's played a pivotal role in her life. This woman is incredible, and we're so proud to be able to share her story as part of our Girls Who Code Sisterhood campaign. I grew up both on and off reservations, but I grew up, like, I spent my teen years partly in Houston, Texas, and sort of going from the res to a larger city, I think helped me. Like now I look back to that time and it's like, oh, this is why I'm so focused on identity or things of that nature. So tell me about your family. Like how, how many generations on the reservation? Why did you leave to go? You know, was it for school? Like walk me through. So I think with with most natives, you're going to find a lot of us, our families are on reservations. Um, We might be urban now, but at some point, you know, it was all native land, (laughs) definitely before 1492. And then after that, like it slowly, because originally like my tribe's from Massachusetts, Stockbridge area, and then we were moved multiple times, as what happened to a lot of tribes. We ended up in Wisconsin. So I know my family history and very familiar with my relatives and stuff. But growing up, I was born in Houston and they just made the choice that I would spend most of my time with half of my family out on the res. And then I had some family problems or I shouldn't say problems, but some things are out like you don't really get to make choices when you're a kid. Yeah. And they were like, well, go back to Houston. You can live with your mom. And I was 11 at the time and I was fairly, I remember being, I knew who she was and I definitely like I knew the area, but if that's not what you feel comfortable in or that's what stability is so important when you're a kid that it was sort of, I think the whole thing was jarring and I was just, I was just really upset with the whole situation. And I don't think it's necessarily my story to tell like everything that led up to that because I was a child. So I was the product of all these things going on. But I know when I, was sent back to Houston. I was definitely upset. And I also struggled with who I was because even on the reservation, I would get called Apple, which is like, she's red on the outside, white in the inside. It's like, Mm. why are you reading? Why are you doing this? Like, who do you think you are? And then I go to Houston and I came in the middle of the year. So I went to this, I tested into the school that was on the opposite side of town and it was a super wealthy school and they had so like access to all these things in the neighborhood that I was in, it was totally separate from this school. And so I would take the bus like two hours to get to the school where our mascot was the Redskins of all things. 
And it was a weird moment because up until that point, I never realized when people saw those those things, like whether it's the Cleveland Indians or the Redskins, like they actually thought of me. And I also didn't realize that people didn't know we existed. I remember everyone whipping their head around during history class because I was supposed to speak on everything. And it's like, wait, that's not my tribe. I don't actually know Pocahontas. Um, <laughs> and it was sort of frustrating because it becomes at that age, I wasn't able to to look at it like, oh, okay, like I'm probably the first native that a lot of these people meet, but it's immediate, this sort of, I don't want to say burden, but I don't know a better term for it where you're expected to be not only the ambassador for your culture, but the historian. And you're supposed to teach everyone and put up with everything that comes along with that. So when they ask you questions like, what do you guys eat? And don't you guys like, live in teepees and how do you know what a computer is you're supposed to be patient and walk them through it it's sort of a it's a lot to ask it's a lot. of a child no i can relate i i always you know being indian being south asian people are like are you born with a dot on your head you know does your mother bathe in curry and it was like you're way too young to be able to i mean first it's like so emotional and painful and you just want to hide who you are and then you're expected to kind of know all things about your culture to explain everything to like basically change people's ignorance. But yeah, so that transition to that school was tough. Were there any other natives there or was it just you? <laughs> no, none that I knew of. And actually, I remember looking at the demographics of the school and they tend to put Native Americans and Pacific Islanders together. And it was still less than 1%. And it was, it's a fairly large school, but it, I do remember there was this whole thing where partly how the name I became associated with that was it this girl came up to me and I was, I was brand new there and she's like, I'm so sorry they're doing this to you. They had a pep rally going on that day and there were like signs in the hall that say scalp them Indians. And, you know, you're, you're not registering that that's you, or at least at that age, I wasn't politically aware of the connotations of all this stuff. And the squirrel comes up to me with a group of people and she's like, I'm so sorry they're doing this to you. And I was like, what, what are they, what are they doing? And then she's like, you know, they're, they're making fun of you and your people. And it was, you know, to a kid that's, I don't want to say the worst thing, but it was such a feeling of like, wow, I'm a joke. And then you start processing your identity through their lens. Because up until that point I had been told, because keep in mind growing up, it's like, oh, she's reading, she's trying to be white, which is so self-defeating. And I think we see this a lot in certain yeah. communities. Michelle Obama talked about it in her book, Becoming, of her experience when she was growing up. Yeah, and it's this idea of like, well, I don't belong here. So I was thinking, you know, while I was upset that I was being sent back, I was being, you know, shuffled between parents, it's at least like, okay, I won't have to deal with this burden of not fitting in. And then I'm finding out like, not only am I not fitting in over here, I'm also the butt end of a lot of jokes. And then I think that just sort of stirs something in you. And I know blood quantum has been an issue that for years, that was some of my first blog posts were about just expressing myself in blood quantum because it's not something other like other. Can you explain to us for the two don't know what that means? So blood quantum is essentially how much native you are. And we're 
Horses, dogs, and natives are the three groups in the U.S. that use a sort of a blood quantum. Um, we actually have an, a literal card, your certificate degree of Indian blood. You'll hear people call it your papers, your CDIB, but it's just a certificate that quantifies how much blood you have that's native. But the system itself is really flawed when you think about it. How can you quantify how much blood someone has? Yeah. And then on top of it... So how do you, they? Like, well, did you take a blood test or what? what is... No. So they go through lineage. But if somebody doesn't sign paperwork, which a lot of natives think about it, like in 1954 or under the Indian termination policy, when people are coming onto reservations and saying, sign this piece of paper, this birth certificate, a lot of natives are going to be like, no, like, why would I trust the Bureau of Indian Affairs, the BIA? Like, you're telling me to sign these documents and I don't see a reason to. And so a lot of people either didn't have their names on the rolls or else we would run into situations where, okay, like you're this much native because you have this much blood, but you married another tribe. You can only enroll with one tribe. And so on paper, it's, it's essentially statistical genocide because on paper you're they're taking away your culture, even though it's what I know, it's what I grew up in. And this is for a lot of people, and especially because the system was not, it's not sustainable. So every generation, in a sense, it halves. And if you come from a smaller tribe like I do, you have to marry somebody within your own tribe. Because if I married somebody outside of it, then we can't add up our quantums. And it, it's like, wait, why are we even, why am I so stressed out by the system that's flawed to begin with? And that system that was made to eradicate us in the first place, because it, I mean, its initial origins are under the 1708 Virginia laws. And it just from there, it sort of went on of how people, outsiders, not natives, but how outsiders will identify us. And I think it's really important that we learn to self-identify. And there's so many natives out there that are doing great work in self-identification, but you know, this is this is all fairly recent. We're talking within the last 30, 40 years, because prior to that, there was people doing research, but a lot of our research would not be saved, or it was not, our methodologies were not considered scientific. We're having to, to recreate our narrative in the very land that our ancestors have been on for generations. And it's sort of, it's overwhelming when it's you think painful. of this. Yeah, stuff. yeah, it's true. So you finish your schooling there, and then what? I, I had some hiccups along the way. I ended up, I ran away a few different times. And the first time when I was like 15, I attempted to a little before, but when I was 15, that's when I really like got on the bus and I went as far as I could. And Where did I you want to go? I just wanted to get out. And in my head, New York was the place. And I had saved up 800 bucks. And I was thinking, like, I'm rich. (laughs) I can do this. And I get to New York. And first of all, nobody wants, unlike the movies, nobody will rent to a kid. Under Mm. like This just doesn't happen. And if they are willing to rent to you, something is Is incredibly sketch. Yeah. And on top of it, $800 is not a lot of money. And there are just a lot of problems. Like I couldn't, you know, I couldn't. Did you go back or did someone find you? I stayed out there for quite some time and then I called. By yourself? Yeah, well, I I had a pretty good situation at one point where I bounced around a lot. Like there were times where I would sleep at Penn Station and I've kind of written on this on Quora and on, on different blog posts where it's like, that's where you learn to turtle up. All your belongings go in your backpack and you sort of like 
go over it. And I used to, with Staten Island Ferry, they used to have like the last ferry out at like 1.30 in the morning. And so I would get there at 1.45 and then I would act like, oh no, I've missed the ferry because the next one wasn't until like 5 a.m. or something like this. And that would allow me to sleep because their terminal is so well lit. Like if you've, and it's just so nice. And so it was like, it felt safer. But then I found out because you start communicating with, I don't know how you sort of fall into it, but having lived in a, a few different cities, it's one thing that you can usually count on. You start talking to people on the bus and they'll usually like steer you in a direction to help you out. And someone was like, Hey, there's this hostel. It was called Loftel at the time off of, I think it was like Greensway. It was out in Bedside, but before Bedside was like what it is now. Yep. <laughs> And I ended up living, it was like 45 people in a brownstone. I shared a room with like 12 or eight different and people. You're li- and I, you're 15 years old at this point. I was 15 and I thought I was grown. Like, I mean, there wasn't a- any doubt in my mind. I didn't view it as like a, that my age was one of the least things I was worried about. But the problem was I couldn't get pickup work. Like I would try to, like I would go to places to get work and everyone's like you're either too young or I couldn't get someone to sign the forms for I think it's like your W-2 yeah and I called my mom when I've told the story to other people there are people that are like well why wasn't she more aware she she was aware and I think people forget that I I didn't necessarily always grow up with her so in my head I was an adult and I at least in my family situation I had to learn to take care of myself fairly young so Mm. She knew I was having trouble in Houston. She knew like I was dealing with things and I think we didn't have that close of a relationship where, and I also wasn't that great at communicating. So I couldn't tell her, I didn't know what I was feeling. I just wanted to leave. And yeah, I I remember calling her and that's when I found out that Houston uh, independent school district has this law where if you're a truant, you're not in trouble. Your parents are in trouble. And she was like, she explained it to me. She's like, you know what? They want to take me to court and all of this. You need to take care of this. And so I got on a bus event late and I came back to Houston and we worked it out. And it was, it was one of those things where she was like, I just want you to graduate school somehow. And another, the, that school wouldn't take me back again, but another school is willing to, and school is not, it wasn't a fun place for me. And I also, looking back, I don't recommend any of these things for students. Like it's not, but this is, I can't deny that this was a huge part of my life and it opened up a lot of things for me. Cause I think, I still think back to those days and it's like, whoa, if I was able to make it through that, like you can make it through anything. Did you feel, yeah. do you feel differently about your, the tribal colleges you went to? Can you tell me about your experience there? That was an incredible experience. So I go back to school and I'm, it was more like grudgingly, like I wasn't excited about it. And I also, because I had left school for like a gap period of time, I was in a lot of trouble. I was put in, um, they called it ISS, in school suspensions. And so you would walk in a single file line, you would sit and face the wall and you would do these, like they would give you workbooks because you weren't allowed in general classes. And I had completed all my workbooks and I would just sit there and it was like, well, what? And then you're also being told if you're not thinking in sort of a mainstream way or your methodologies are a bit different, it's 
you're essentially told that you're dumb. And I don't think I ever fully, I think I was a little too arrogant to completely believe that, but there definitely was a sense of like, well, college isn't in the books for me. And the moment I graduated, I started working and I would keep this blog and I had this blog, you know, since I was a teen, started off as like a whiny live journal. And then I had its dead journal cousin for a while in it, but I, I would keep, I had a fairly steady blogging voice. And I remember one of the comments was like, cause I started gaining an audience and it's weird. At least for me, it was, what was really the name weird. of your blog? Oh, I had different ones, but at the time I want to say it was, it was still under native notes, which mm-hmm. now I, I have a Tumblr related to it. But the original, I think when I got serious about it, it became a WordPress, which back in the day meant like you were really serious yep. about your blog. <laughs> <laughs> I remember. And, and so I, I would just write a bunch of whiny stuff. Like, you know, sometimes it would deal with like, you know, guys or how I thought I looked or things like this, but I would write a lot about being native and because it also helped me sort my thoughts. Do you feel like that's like your identity was at like the center of your pain? Yeah. You know, it's really profound that you put it that way, but I, yeah, I think in a lot of ways and I never registered that because it's like, Oh, this is why I'm not this or this is why, but it's never like, Hey, you don't even know who you are. Like, figure that out first. But I got this comment, and I talked about this one a lot in interviews, where someone was like, you know, if you're serious about changing things, you would go to school. And to read that as, like, a 19-year-old, it's like, like, I, I have a job. I'm earning minimum wage. Like, I'm good. But there was an overwhelming part of me that's like, yeah, I do want to go to school, but I'm kind of scared of it. And then I put it off. And then the next year, it's like, well, you know, applications are coming around. And but then I would get really scared because I don't even know how to go to school. No one. My mom has her uh, GED. Like, you know, I definitely read books about people who went to school in these elaborate schools, but I never, I never actually knew the daily grind of it. I, I knew life a lot through movies and books. The mainstream life. And so I remember Googling just like how to go to school. And Haskell is one of the older, like native colleges. It's not the oldest tribal college, but it's one of the older tribal colleges. And back in the day, like it was a junior college and it was the only one that was sort of connected to my family because my grandma was going to go there and then she was sent to a Do you have to go to a tribal college that's connected to your tribe or your family? No. Tribal colleges are fairly open. And my tribe doesn't actually have a tribal college. The closest one we have is Menominee Nation. And what I feel like I should stress is the scope of Indian country in in North America. 567 federally recognized tribes and 172 reservations. Those may have changed a bit, like fluctuated wow. just one or two numbers. But those are very large and we're not a monolithic block. We're quite different. So you can't, what one tribe holds sacred, another tribe may view as taboo. And we see this a lot, especially with like Diné and Hopi, where the Hopi reservation is surrounded by the Navajo Nation. Some of the ceremonies that they hold are considered taboo for the outside reservation. And same thing with my tribe, because again, we were originally from Massachusetts and we were just moved multiple times. 
So there wasn't really a connection that I had with going to Menominee Nation, and I didn't know of it too much. Like, I kind of, in passing, growing up, like, oh, there's this, like, junior college, but they only offer, like, one or two courses. And at that time, I was like, if I'm going to go to if I'm going to go to school, I'm going to go to a big school. And I remember thinking, well, Danae College, that's – and after Googling it and reading more about it, I was like, yeah, I want to go here. It's the first tribally controlled college. And I had this very nebulous idea in my head that I would just go to school, get a degree, and then I would change things. Like that's how it works. <laughs> so did you fall in love with technology when you were there? I fell in love with technology through blogging, and I didn't realize I was because it really wasn't – you didn't know it that you were basically my, coding, essentially. No, it wasn't until my first internship that I had just earned my AA from Danae College, and I was interning in D.C. under this amazing uh, – it's an amazing program called Quality Education for Minorities. Yes, I'm very and, familiar with it. Oh, yeah. okay. And Dr. – this was back when Dr. Shirley McVeigh okay. – she stepped down about two years ago, but – she was in charge and she would every day, you know, check on what you were doing. Like she was so, it was such an incredible experience having her as what I viewed as a mentor. But part of the thing that we would do is we were given an externship within our internship where we would go out and, you know, we were based with an agency. And then what we would do during our internship with QEM is research. And at the end of this, this, I think it was like 10 weeks we had to present a research project. At this time, I was like very stubborn about, I'm only going to do something related to tribal colleges. Because anytime I would get like any sort of like platform to talk, I'd want to talk about tribal colleges. And she was like, okay, so what, what's your research going to be? And I was like, I'm going to look at the STEM programs offered at various tribal colleges and compare them to mainstream institutions. And then look at MSI, like a very elaborate, clearly had not done research in the past because I would not have bitten off this much. But I really wanted to impress her. For those of you that don't know, Dr. Shirley McVeigh was like the first African-American female dean at MIT. She's a brilliant mathematician. And I just, I really wanted to impress her. But not even within like the first quarter of this research project, I realized like, wow, I grossly underestimated access to data because there wasn't an existing database where I could just go in and pull these numbers. This is something I was going to have to manually pull from all these websites. So and not just websites, some of them didn't even have websites or they weren't very intuitive. So I was like, okay, like in my head, how can I pull this much data? I'll just code an aggregator, um, essentially like a web crawler. Mm -hmm. It really wasn't that complex, but again, she was very hands-on. So she would like, she would walk down the hall and look into the office and your computer had to be facing the door so she could see what was on the screen. And so I was running Sublime. And again, here I am supposed to be in like Excel and I'm running Sublime. And I had, it was just like, it was Python basically. But I mean, I didn't, I was really scared. I didn't know I because in my head, I was just trying to get out of work mm. by, you know, coding this because it would pull it for me. And she's like, what are you doing? And <laughs> I'm just thinking, oh, my God, I've, I've ruined this. And here's my hero going to be really upset. And I try to explain. And she's like, no, I mean, what are you doing? Like, why, if you're coding, why aren't you in tech? 
And, <laughs> and I was just like, well, I'm not a, I'm not a tech person. Cause you know, every, everyone knows well, Python. Well, we Ruby, always like, say that to ourselves, right? <laughs> yeah. Cause I didn't think anything that I was doing was, was special like that. or different. Right. Yeah. I, how I learned to code in the first place was initially like for my blog, I couldn't afford a template. So I learned HTML. And then when you learn HTML, you look at other people's and you're like, wait, there's moves and has a, a better quality. I'm going to learn some JavaScript. That's the great thing about the internet is you just need the question. Right. And you can but learn anything. The re- yeah. I didn't view it as like some incredible ability to like, code there was always just like hey i want to learn this or even way before that like going back to like when i would use the computers at the library and i was i don't know how old i was like nine or something or whatever and they would have these time limits on it so you couldn't spend too much time on like club penguin or whatever and i needed i definitely needed more time and that's when i just started clicking around and you get into like settings and stuff, but I didn't have that idea of what settings what was, was in my yeah. mind. It was, it was more just like, how do I turn this off? And then when it turned off, that's when I realized like, wait, hey, I just told the computer what to what do. To do. And and I made like, it do it. So when she tells you this, what do you say to yourself and what happens next? Again, I was really scared that I was being set up to like, I just couldn't get over the fact that she was amazed by anything I was doing or not amazed, but like, yeah. I didn't think what I was doing to somebody who's so intelligent and so whose career is so just mind blowing. I don't think I could impress her in any way. So all I'm thinking is like, oh, I messed up. And then we we knew some of the other people in the office, but she was like, no, you should really think about this. And I am blanking on the person's name, but they are still there. And they also went to MIT and they talked to me a little more about tech. And I was just, you know, I was still sort of shell shocked. And I remember she asked me, and this sort of tells you my frame of mind of how sort of arrogant I was because she's like, did you take your GRE yet? And I was like, no, I don't need that. And, you know, they're all staring at me. And I was like, no, no, no I, I got a degree because I thought they meant GED because I had no... Right clue what a GRE was like then she's like okay like what we need to do is get you into a tech program and then I was like well I I don't actually have like a BA like I just have these AAs I went to you know and we started talking more in depth she was super patient and just great with the whole program is super supportive of your journeys like in school but I wasn't really comfortable leaving the tribal college setting just yet because it had proved to be so, I tend to be very loyal to things that are good. And it was the first time I went to a school where no one was, no one asked me what we ate growing up. Yeah. Growing like you felt up safe or, there and you felt at home and it was like secure. Yeah. And I also got to self-identify mm. for the first time. I didn't have to like wave around the fact I was native or hide the fact that I was native, no matter what I did, I was native. Like there wasn't, no one was questioning that. And no one was also acting like my life was, I used to get into more detail about what happened when I was sent to Houston, like what led up to that. And people would treat it with such a sense of like, oh my God, I can't believe people are allowed to do this to kids. And then you go to a school like this and however horrible it is that other people have to experience that, there's a bunch of people who don't view my my childhood as some sort of sideshow who not only can empathize with it, but also can sort of relate by sharing their own experience. Yeah, yeah. relate. Yeah, and it's powerful. I learned, 
that I don't necessarily, this doesn't define me in any way. And that you're not the only one. So we're coming to a close. I wanted to ask you though, can you think of a moment where you decided to be brave, not perfect? I think the first time I am, I was asked to go on to do any sort of like media because I remember my, my first response was like, like, do you know what I look like? Because, you know, that's been an ongoing thing since I was a kid. I try not to let it bother me, but I'm also fairly aware you put yourself out there and people are going to have a comment on it. And then it was like, someone else was like, if you do this, do you realize you could get your hackathon funded? You could get these, you could get a larger platform for this stuff. And it was one of those weird moments of like, oh, hey, like everything I'd been hiding in this sort of shell. I'm never going to be what people expect of me, but it doesn't matter. Like just go out there, just do it. And who knows what's going to happen in the process. I think it was like the first time that I was really like, you know what, I'm just going to go out there and do this regardless of what I look like, regardless of everyone who's, you know, told me like, <laughs> you know, I have a face for radio and stuff like this and not, <laughs> it's, it's one of those things where it's like, I, I don't I don't think I care too much anymore. That's amazing. And it worked out, right? It's like Oh, definitely. It I had spent two years trying to get this thing funded and within two weeks of having gone on that initial show that I did, I was not only able to get a, a much larger hackathon funded, I was able to get like smaller like workshops set up and seminars and it was just like, wait, like all it took was putting myself out there and being okay with whatever comes back because now I know who I am and I'm, I'm allowed to define who I am. Robin, where are you living right now? Right now I'm in Portland, but it's specifically, I'm part of this incubator at Wyden and Kennedy, which is totally a departure from my normal, but I get to play around with tech a lot and do sort of, it's a six month incubator here at Wyden and Kennedy, I should say. That's amazing. Well, thank you so much. We're so proud of you. And it was so, it was really awesome to hear your story today. Oh, thank you so much. I, Girls Who Code has been, it's incredible. Like, it's weird to even sort of talk to you because, you know, I <laughs> I read about you. <laughs> well, if you're ever in New York, will you please come say hello? I'd love to meet you in person. I would love to. Thank you for joining me for another episode of Brave Not Perfect. Want to make bravery a part of your everyday routine? You can buy my newest book, Brave Not Perfect. Fear less, fail more, and live bolder. It's on shelves now and available at your favorite local or online retailer. I can't wait to hear what you think. Till next time, this has been another episode of Brave Not Perfect with me, Reshma Sajani. Brave Not Perfect is produced by Tanya Zaporanik and Emily Scheinbar and edited by Jenny Josephson with music composed by Poddington Bear licensed under a Creative Commons license.